Hello and welcome to episode 51 of The Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast for the casual spike, focused on the latest decks, trends, and strategies in modern and pioneer. My name is Shane, here in Denver, Colorado, with me on the line from Chicago, Illinois. It's Zach Colhan. Shane, I'm so happy to be here, but I feel a great void, a great emptiness in my heart right now. I know. I, I think it's because... Stan and Dave are both off this week on like a special assignment, uncovering some some secret gems in the temples. Is that true? Where at? Location unknown to be determined? I don't think that's true. I think I made that up. Hmm. But in their place, we do have two very special guests in our first ever crossover episode, the captain of Niv Industries, Dan and the Ranger Captain of Niv Industries, Damon, from Faithless Brewing. Hey, thanks for having us. Guys, we've been a big fans of Faithless Brewing for a while. Super excited to see you all start just a little bit after we got going to join the MTG podcast family. A lot of people in the community have been asking us to make this happen. So here we are. Happy to have you here. Oh, you got my messages. I was posting under different false accounts. <laughs> Those Faithless Brewing guys are doing cracking work over there. <laughs> Why don't you have them on the show? <laughs> yeah, so but before we get going on the episode, uh, we'd like to know a little bit more about you. I'm sure our listeners who aren't familiar with Faithless Brewing want to know a little bit about each of you, and then we can get on to the podcast. So, Damon, Dan, uh, tell us and our listeners a little bit about yourselves. Like, well, where do you guys live? How long have you been playing Magic? That kind of stuff. Yeah, so I currently live in Seattle. This is Damon. Um and I've known Dan ever since uh, maybe like we were next door neighbors growing up, but we started playing cards together maybe around fifth or sixth grade for me. Uh, I joined Magic right around the time I started knowing of Magic cards when Carnivorous Plant was a, a beat stick. Four or five for four. Holy cow. Saw that local game store. I started playing competitively with a White Weenie featuring some Rebels and Longbow Archer in a sixth edition. And then my favorite deck growing up was the Opalescence Replenish deck. That thing was just pure gas. Uh, took a took a bit of a break from Magic in my 20s in grad school and such, uh, and then rejoined the the game. And I've uh, been co-hosting Faceless Brewing with Dan and uh, our third partner Dave. When did you uh, When did you come back? I popped back in from um, Zendikar actually for long enough to pick up a couple of uh, Scalding Tarns, which was a great choice. It turns out, <laughs> and then I started playing a lot more around Dominaria. Oh, word! Oh, wow! Okay, pretty recent. Very cool. How about you, Dan? Yeah, my origin story is the same as Damon's, although I'm a couple years older than him. So the the great thing about growing up with childhood friends, when you're a couple years older, you get to be the leader in everything, even though it may not be earned or deserved. And that's continued throughout our podcasting life now as adults. <laughs> that's how Dave must feel, I guess. <laughs> our Dave. Yeah, when uh, Dan finished 40th at the most recent GP and I finished 42nd, it felt exactly like our childhood. <laughs> <laughs> um. But I think about Faithless Brewing, we got a question from our listeners. We uh, we asked the, our Twitter, we asked our patrons to give us some questions for you all to sprinkle throughout the episode. And our patron, Mike, asked, what advantages are there to brewing your own deck rather than net decking what has been doing well at recent tournaments? Which I think kind of gets to the ethos of Faithless Brewing, perhaps. So that's a great question. That's a question that really gets to the heart of our podcast, actually, as the name might imply, Faithless Brewing, we are a brewing podcast, which means that you know we're kind of structured every episode around a card of the week where 
you know, our goal is to sort of learn what we can about how to make a certain card successful in a given format. And for most of our existence, that format has been modern, although we've been branching out into Pioneer in the last few weeks. Seems like a popular topic. <laughs> I wouldn't know anything about that. But the question of like, why, why would you do this? I think that's one that, you know, we've each had to wrestle with ourselves in different ways. From the podcasting side of things, Faith is brewing the idea for it, which is something that I wanted to be able to do and share with my good friends, Damon and Dave. You know, I've heard the advice that you're supposed to just make the content that you want to hear, the content that you love. And thank goodness I followed that advice. Um, But it also turns out that that is the way to engage with magic that I enjoy the most. There's a component of magic. It's such an all-encompassing game where you can spend a lot of time studying and learning about what other people are playing, studying the metagame, trying to learn a new deck, listening to the dive down, trying to master a new archetype. But then there's the whole deck building side of things where there's a creative element trying to figure out you know, your own strategy that I find personally really rewarding. Um, it's kind of just thinking about decks, like thinking about how I might try to create the conditions for a card to succeed. And yeah, there's a little bit of, I don't know what the right word for it is. It's a hopeless quest in some case, you know, the, the brewer, the self-described brewer is choosing not to play the best decks. They are the best decks. I don't want to beat around the bush about that. If you want to win the tournament, you probably (laughs) should be playing one of those, (laughs) but there's a component of the game that I think for me just gets back to something very visceral about magic, the the discovery process, the creativity, the deck building, just the fun of it, just being able to kick around some ideas with your friends. And, you know, we're always workshopping things. We're arguing with each other about this is a crazy idea. Like, I can't believe you're trying to put this card in a deck. Why are we playing with Cauldron <laughs> Familiar yet again, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but it's been really fun. What about you, Damon? What do you get out of uh, brewing rather than net decking. Yeah, I mean, I definitely lose a lot of MTGO tickets. Uh, <laughs> but it's certainly a very satisfying process. Um, I think if you're going to take it to, like a deck to a tournament, taking a brew versus a net deck is honestly just a matter of personal choice. You can try to spike a tournament. You probably have better odds with a, a net deck. But if you take a brew, then first off, your opponents won't have you in your sideboard guides. Of course, you probably don't have a sideboard guide at all. But... <laughs> um, it's just a lot of fun. You get a lot of interesting looks, you get a lot of fun questions, and you get a kind of a, a new challenge of developing these play patterns that maybe nobody else has really been doing before. And a lot of the brews are just straight up fun. Um, and it's always exciting to see kind of fresh cards get a new life in a new shell, uh, taking things through some leagues. And sometimes like what works well and what doesn't will be very surprising. Um, except for Keth this week. That week was miserable. <laughs> <laughs> that card, that freaking card. Oh my goodness. Yeah, fun is important. I think it's important for us to remember that. Um, so awesome. I think that's that's it's great. Uh it's I will encourage all of our listeners to check out Faithless Brewing if they haven't. I know many have, but they're an awesome member of the Magic of the Gathering podcast family. And we're really happy to have both of you on this week. Oh, we're happy to be here. Thank you. In this week's breakdown, we'll be going over the week of Pioneer PTQs and MTGO and today's bands and what this means for the near-term future of the format. Then the dive down, we're going deep on five-color Niv-Mizzet and the architects of the strategy, Faith is Brewing. How to build it, how to play it, and maybe, just maybe, how to beat it. And since this is such a packed episode, no wind down this week. But first, some housekeeping. All right, first we want to thank Johnny W, Ian P, Philip F, and Zach H for joining our Patreon. Thanks to Devin H, 1989, and Music Man Dean for the nice reviews on Apple Podcasts. We truly appreciate your support 
and shout outs there on Apple Podcasts. You know, as always, we're brought to you by our patrons. You know, each week, some awesome people out there give us their hard earned money because we're making a podcast. And so if you'd like to do the same, support us by joining our Patreon. Go to www.patreon.com slash the dive down. See what cool things you can get at various tiers of support. But most importantly, everyone gets access to the super secret Slack server where citizens of the Dive Down Nation are always chatting about Magic the Gathering. And we're also brought to you in part by Mana Traders, which is the best rental service for Magic Online and paper. If you're interested in checking that out, you can save 15% on your first three months by using our special link in the show notes or code the Dive Down, all one word, when you sign up. Now, Dan, Damon, you guys also have a Patreon going, right? We do, yeah. We have recently launched our own Patreon, so patreon.com slash faithlessbrewing if you have some leftover change after you've given your support to the hardworking folks at the Dive Down. <laughs> no, I think that is one thing that I've started doing last year more than ever, and I want to continue into the new year, which is paying content creators that I like directly. Because if I can't do that, then what am I doing listening to them? Because people are working hard at this stuff, and I've learned that in the last year. I'm sure you all have learned that in the last six-plus months doing this, that it is not easy to make content, and you guys are worthy of our support. So I know I joined you guys day one. So <laughs> That's true. Everyone, People should do that out there, too. Shane Beast was a day one patron of Faithless Brewing. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, thank you for saying that. I think you're exactly right that, I've come to really understand the content creation side of things a lot more in these past six months. And it's a, a bit of a change in mentality, but it makes total sense to me now. And I make, that's one of my things I'm looking forward to most for the next year. I've got a list of the content creators that I'm looking forward to supporting myself. I've joined the Dive Down Patreon. I have not found the Slack channel yet. It's so secret that I forget to you, open you, it. You've totally been there. I've been there. But no, I, no, no. It's, it, it's hidden behind several mazes, a waterfall or two. I can give that away, but it's hidden. <laughs> There's a secret password that um, I lost it. And Dan, shut up. <laughs> so I'm in the cyberverse right now, as all these happened online, fully logged in, systems completely hacked. And we had some very big changes in Pioneer that we'll get to very shortly. Based on the week of Pioneer PTQs, Wizards has acted and banned three cards from the format. So right before we get into these, let's provide a little context for the data. And we'll go through this really quick. Yeah, so we had eight PTQs in the past week of Pioneer. That's right, y'all, right? It was eight, I think, in the last week. Sure, there are eight days in a week. Why yeah, not? Eight days a week. And so there's not really a lot of reason for us to read down these individual decks, right? Because the meta is now just shaken up, and a lot of these decks might not exist in their same way. Torn asunder, if yeah, you Yeah, just torn asunder. So we got the top 32s from each of them, right? And then we got the top eights. Uh, as well, of course, out of those top 32. So what I thought was interesting is just the sheer percentage of aggressive decks and um, field decks, right? So in the top 32, we had like various copter aggro decks, like a just under 50% of the meta, and mono black alone was like 26%. And in the top eight, that was even more aggressive with about 64% of the decks being aggro decks doesn't look very good looks very bad <laughs> looks very aggro and then the field decks of course made up about 26 percent of the top 32s and about 19 percent of the top eights so long story short we saw aggro decks of various types going up against field decks of various types 75 percent of the top 32 decks of all eight ptqs were either aggro or field 
And the top eight was about 73% aggro or field. Not a great look. Yeah, from a brewer's perspective and also playing in a couple of the PTQs, it, it really felt like field or mono black were just the end bosses of every single PTQ watching the results and playing in the leagues. Um, when your opponent just goes swamp into Castle Locksman into Muta Vault, like those three lands alone give them such a huge edge over you. And then they have a Bloodsoak Champion and a Copter, and if you don't have an answer to Copter, you just lose the game as they draw a card every turn because they're discarding Scroungers. Meanwhile, I, I actually played Bantfield a bit, and every time I cast an Hour of Promise, I felt like I could not lose the game. <laughs> My opponent's doing something, <laughs> but it's not going to stack up to that. I am the best at magic. I am unstoppable. <laughs> yeah. No, it's you, all it takes is watching that deck one time to realize the Field of the Dead decks. It's just how incredible Field of the Dead is as an endgame value engine. Yeah. Especially combined with Hour of Promise. Yeah, the only shining light I saw in the whole PTQ was the uh, green-white Selesnya Knights list, which I, I think Sam Black posted on his Discord. That that deck, I still don't even remember the name of the one. Like, it's two green-white for a 3-3 three, three flash, and it gives your whole squad, like, plus one, plus one in lifelink. That's the Huron's Grace Champion. Yes. <laughs> Welcome to the, <laughs> the limelight, Huron's Grace Champion. Yeah, I saw Todd Anderson run that through a league today. I think he went pretty pretty quick, four and one. I saw one of his game ones went a total of one minute and two seconds <laughs> on his clock. So Wow. And that was versus Mono Black. I, I'm timing out actively. I timed out when we were playing Niv for this episode. <laughs> <laughs> okay, <sighs> so in response to this, Wizards of the Coast acted, right? So we got... Smuggler's Copter Band, Field of the Dead Band, Once Upon a Time Band. So who wants to talk about Smuggler's Copter? It's still too fresh. I'm, I'm not really prepared to talk about it yet. Uh, that hurts. That one cuts. Are you mourning it or are you happy that it's gone? I'm mourning it. I'm mourning it. It's Okay. Awake, if you will. We barely know the card. It had such a short life in Standard. <laughs> How many weeks has it been in Pioneer? Five? Six? I, I find that if your opponent plays a Copter on turn two... And you're not just like completely beating them down with whatever. Uh, you, you already fall behind so fast. Uh, hitting for three in the air with evasion that dodges sorcery speed removal and every creature off the top can crew it. Like, do you fight their creatures? Like, you either have an answer to it in hand right then or you just kind of lose the game. Right. Uh, it provides way too much of an advantage. So Wati's justification for losing Copter was that the general strength of aggro decks and then specifically Mono Black was mentioned was just enough to sort of chop a little bit off the top by losing Copter. Um, and Mono Black especially, like you mentioned, Damon, was the looting effect of Copter. Mono Black is so easily able to use because you can pitch those Bloodsoaked Champions, you can pitch that Scrappy Scrounger, and then get that back out of the graveyard later. So it's just more valuable to Mono Black than to almost any other deck. Well, then we had Field of the Dead. The justification for that was that it suppressed both reactive and controlling decks. and Damon, you played with this card a little bit, so what do you think about Field of the Dead being banned? Uh, I think it was a great choice. The card just provides too much for too little deck building cost. Um, you don't even have to really build around with Hour of Promise. It just turns out that's the best way to do it with the card pool available. Uh, but the fact that you just get to play a bunch of lands to control deck, which control decks are, are more than happy to do to begin with, and then have this easy inevitability from just like making... It starts off slow, right? You get like, oh, yeah, I got one zombie this turn. And all of a sudden, like two turns later, you have like four Field of the Dead in play. And you play a, a Fabled Passage and you have eight more zombies. And then you play Rejuvenator, another four more zombies. And they're looking at 12 
12 tutus. And then the, the new tech that people figured out pretty quickly of Westvale Abbey, now you're standing on a 9-7 indestructible lifelink haste. <laughs> on turn five. <laughs> and, it, and it adds to the name count for Field of the Dead. It's just so good. Yeah, that was a really, that, that really took the yeah, deck to yeah, the next yeah, level. Yeah. yeah, I think this would probably then allow mid-range and control decks to actually exist competitively in the format, probably, right? Because with Field of the Dead around, it just invalidated what they were trying to do by just going over the top in such an easy way by just playing lands and having this you know land as a four of in your deck. The final card that we mentioned was Once Upon a Time, with the justification being given the general prevalence and dominance of green decks as a group, with Once Upon a Time being a key common factor to those decks' success. And this just makes sense. Literally every Pioneer game I see this card, it feels ridiculous to me. It's good good quote-unquote, or just find the late game as well. And there's just really no downside. It's just so good. And I'm just happy to have Pioneer be a little less consistent. I like that about it. Yeah, I've mentioned this in the past. It just like allows for so many sketchy keeps. Like you have like a single land or you're missing like a colored source and you're like, well, I can dig for it with this once upon a time or I can dig for my mana elf on turn one. It just allows for these mono, these green decks, especially not necessarily just mono green, just to have such consistency. And it really just had to go. It's a mistake of a card. I tend to agree we actually have a third co-host on Faithless Brewing, uh, David. He's not here today. We also have a David. What? Yeah, yeah he, he's actually just a brain in a jar. Uh, we, don't, uh, we don't take him out, but he provides most of our deck lists. He's been on a personal crusade against Once Upon a Time ever since the card was first previewed. He won't call it a victory today. He'll just, you know, I'm sure we're going to get into this when we record our next show. He says it's not a real magic card, and... It'll just it'll just set him off. He'll just sit back, squ- squint happily, smile. Yeah, the show's going to open partway through, just middle of a conversation where Dave is losing his mind. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Once upon a time, feels too much like a taxing probe to me. You include it in your deck, it costs zero mana the first time through, and it gives you a pretty big benefit. Um, in this case, you don't get to see your opponent's hand, but you get to find the best card to fix your opener, and so it's like. It's like a negative one mulligan. And so if you're if you both keep seven, all of a sudden it's like you're keeping almost like an eight card hand. Yeah. That's a good point. This is good. I have some hope for the future. I don't think these bands are are too debatable. I think you know everything seems pretty safe. I think it'll open up the format. I'm excited to see what's gonna happen. I've been enjoying playing Pioneer. I know uh Zach has. It sounds like you have Damon and Dan, maybe you dip your toe in, in Pioneer yet? He's aware of it. I dabble. <laughs> You dabble. Good. Yeah, but I think I think the future will be a little bit better now, I think, even for brewing, because I don't think it'll just be kind of a hyper aggro versus uh, Field of the Dead format. And a little bit more will be opened up for people to experiment and have some fun with, I think, especially mid-range of control players. So all that being said, uh, we're going to move on to the meat of the discussion and our dive down with five-color Niv-Mizzet. So we'll be back. Stay with us. So on this week's Dive Down, like we mentioned, we're going over five-color Niv-Mizzet in Modern. And we have, luckily with us, two of the individuals who have made the deck what it is currently and brought it to its current, almost fully evolved status. So I'm going to pass it off to you, Dan and Damon. We can go over a little bit of the origin of the deck, give some history, how the deck came to be, how it grew from the young sapling to the giant oak it is now. Yeah, so this deck, Niv-Mizzet Reborn, 
sometimes called five-color Niv-Mizzet or Niv-to-Light, Rainbow Niv. It goes by many names. Which one do you prefer? Gosh, did we ever decide on this? I just call it Niv. The, the company line is Niv, okay? We're not going to put any more on <laughs> In many senses, this card and this deck is synonymous with the history of our, our podcast. It just so happens, as you mentioned, we've been doing Faithless Brewing for about six months and our first show corresponded with the release of War of the Spark. So we're going to travel back in time for a moment to those Halcyon days, late May 2019. What, what I've come to think of is actually a golden age of modern. This is, might be a heresy that I'm speaking here. But if you recall back then, there had just been a mythic championship in the modern format that used this new London mulligan. They were still testing it out. For some reason, that tournament didn't actually use War of the Spark cards. So we didn't yet know just how format shaping some of these planeswalkers like Teferi, Time Raveler, Karin the Great Creator, Narset, Parter of Veils. We didn't really know what kind of shakeup we were in store for. Then, of course, one month later, Modern Horizons came out. But young and naive as we were, the the car that we were really excited to explore, um, I think this was our second episode of the cast, was Nimbus at Reborn. It's very much a brewer's card in the sense that it asked you to solve a puzzle. So Nimbus at is a five-color dragon that asks you to fill your deck with a bunch of gold cards. And it didn't actually occur to me right away to even consider this card until I came across uh, some discussion online where some kind soul had asked, hey, do you think maybe this card could work in a constructive format? It seemed like you would only need about 20 or so eligible cards that Nimbus can find. And of course, the internet being what it is, everyone piled on and said, oh, you know, you never played Modern before. Don't you know you can't do this? <laughs> Go home, noob. Go back to EDH. But it got the gears turning for me. I was persuaded, actually, that, you know, maybe there's something here. When something is described as an EDH card, one way to translate that is that it's actually a very powerful card. It's got a super powerful ability. That power doesn't always translate across formats, of course. Sometimes it's attached to a huge converted mana cost. Sometimes it's attached to an ability that only works in multiplayer. Niv-Mizzet didn't seem to have those restrictions. Um, it seemed like in a one-on-one -on -one game, you could still very easily take great advantage of all the power that the card was offering. So we set about in our second show, I think, to just try to think through what would a deck look like that was built around this card. So I came home from work on a Friday and Dan was like, hey, can you finish this league for me? I got to run. And I was like, oh, sure. And I log in, <laughs> look at the deck and I'm like, what? I actually found my, my our transcript of Cheat Chat. And my immediate question was, oh boy, what? Question mark, question mark, question mark. Uh, you never really noticed that you can interpret a magic deck by just like looking at the visual image of it and seeing all the different colors until they're all gold, which means that they basically don't convey any information <laughs> as you look at the deck. Um, it was a pile of Assassin's Trophies and Helixes and some Nivs, and my second comment was, this is a brew. My third comment was, I'm not sure I'm smart to play this list. I, <laughs> oh, I, <know> uh, that. <laughs> I guess you're supposed to beat Tiel into Niv Mizzet Reborn and get massive value, question mark, question mark. <laughs> And then uh, we go into the matches. Arc looks like there isn't a seam vents. Uh, the mana base really went through a couple of evolutions. We start off with this like Abzan-focused build for some reason, uh, featuring exactly plains, forest, swamp, and if they field of ruin your red source, you just can't find a mountain. <laughs> oh, whoops! Look, the guy lose now. Right-click, concede. Go back to the drawing board. And then my next comment is, "Hmm, Niv just drew me four cards. I guess that's cool." <laughs> Man, I hit exactly one card off this Niv feels bad, but he's still a 6-6 dragon, LOL. <laughs> and then I actually finished the league with two wins, and uh, we got our first 5-0. And then that got published uh, the next week, 
And all of a sudden, a bunch of streamers saw this list and got some shout outs on uh, Twitter. Nobody knows I was helping contribute behind the scenes to this 5.0, <laughs> but that's okay with me. And um, from there, streamers just took it and got it really popular. Yeah, I'm trying to remember when we first noticed this deck um, on the dive down because we do we do, you know we did dig through the five O list and stuff like that, and we would look for decks like this to to pick out and take notice of. And I'm, I don't remember when we did. Do you remember Zach? It was your second ever sleeve believe heave episode, War of the Spark Edition, I believe. Uh, Dave. Yeah, Dave ran it through, right? I think so. Yeah, I think Dave ran it through uh, a sleep leave heave. He ran it through a league or two. I think, uh, yeah, I do remember that. Yeah, I'd say Dave was absolutely the first one who was hot on this deck and was just, guys, It's I draw a bunch of cards and I get to play them. And as we all know, Dave's favorite thing to do is to draw cards. So what if you drew seven of them? Isn't that the most? <laughs> so like, yeah, from the get-go, Dave's like, I think there's something here. I think there's something here. And then lo and behold, the deck began to evolve and take form, change a mana base, and... I mean, really what I'm seeing here is, as we'll talk about in a second, Modern Horizons pushed this deck from, like, fringe, like, I'm going to steal League to, oh, I'm consistently very good all the time. Yeah, and we're definitely going to talk about the upgrades that Modern Horizons brought to the deck later when we get through some of the cards. One of the things that I'm kind of curious about is what you all think this deck's archetype is, right? Like, is this mid-range? Is this control? How do you describe it or think about it? I'm so glad you asked. This is one of my hobby horse issues. I think one thing that people often say when they are just writing about the deck or summarizing it is they'll describe it as a really big mid-range deck, like Big Jund or Biggest Jund, perhaps. Perhaps responding to the fact that there is a large creature. Niv Mizzet is kind of like a Tarmogoyf that's wearing like a Technicolor flying dragon coat or something. And it has some of the same cards, Assassin's Trophy, Planeswalkers, that kind of thing. We were playing a Thought Erasure at one point, who knows why. But really, I think that's a misleading comparison. I think of this more as a control deck. It's actually a very slow, relaxing control deck. Um, and in the sense that Jund, if you try to get to the essence of Jund, this is something that Jadine Klamparans, when she um, when she was still writing for Star City, talked about a lot, was that Jund plays a disruptive suite that tries to create to try to punch a hole with discard spells and create a window to close the door with something like a Tarmogoyf or even a Raging Ravine, a Liliana. But it doesn't have inevitability as the game goes long. So it has attrition elements. That's part of what allows a card like Tarmogoyf to be effective, but it's not really designed to just outlast everything else. Whereas Niv, I think, is built to be a long game deck or the longest game deck. We mostly just let the opponent do their thing and we remove their cards as they play them and then we reload and just do it all again until they run out of stuff. Yeah, the way I like to characterize this as a control deck is it's really based around permanent interaction as opposed to stack interaction or perhaps discard spells. Mm -hmm. You have the tools to beat almost anything that resolves onto the battlefield. Sometimes it's a little bit painful dealing with cards like Urza that generate two permanents. But in a pinch, we have this uh, Supreme Verdict you can reach for to kind of just wipe the table clean of creatures and if you draw a bunch of cards, including a Teferi, an Assassin's Trophy, and maybe an Oko, you can handle you know any random lands or enchantments or artifacts they, they can have. Um, sometimes cards like Hexdrinker can be problematic when uh, they get leveled up because we don't have any answers besides Supreme Verdict. But yeah. that card isn't super big in modern. Also, uh, getting Lattice Lock can be difficult to deal with. 
but I think most decks suffer from that. <laughs> there is a, a card in the deck, though, and I use it to beat a Hex Drinker in my leagues against Jund, and that's Kaya's Guile, where they sacrifice a creature, and I was able to brain for light it, and it felt so very good. So don't discount your own deck fitting <laughs> skills. Yeah, one thing that you all noted that I liked is that, you know, blue-white control-type decks and even Jund is getting kind of a lot of two-for-ones, right? They want to get maximum advantage out of their Planeswalkers, out of things like uh, Snapcaster or things like Cryptic Command. Um, but the Niv-Mizzet deck doesn't really play like a two-for-one game. It kind of plays like a six-for-one game. Yeah, <laughs> or four-for-one, yeah, absolutely. By by casting Niv-Mizzet. Exactly. So it's a play pattern difference as well. When you're facing off against a deck like Blue-White, um, you'll notice that they're consistently getting small little two-for-ones throughout the game. And the Niv-Mizzet game plan is gambling that at some point we'll be able to pull off that spectacular four or five or six-for-one by resolving the dragon. <laughs> I sometimes think of it like resolving a Teferi Hero of Dominaria and then upticking it three times immediately to draw three cards and getting ultimate all in the same turn because the cards I drew were all spells. They were all removal spells, so I've got their next three plays basically locked down. Um, yeah, it seems okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and some of these gold cards are actually like unreal silver bullets in the right situations. Like a K-Command at the right time is an easy two-for-one. Kai's Guile could be a huge blowout. Uh, Lightning Helix against a burn deck is actually a, a very solid two-for-one. Mm -hmm. um, and then Supreme Verdict, every time you wipe away six humans, <laughs> um, you feel like the game is over even if you don't have Niv at all. Right, right. For sure. Well, your board's empty. You have one card, and I'll have a dragon at some point. So an another kind of deck that this can get compared to is kind of Amulet Titan-style decks. What do you think about that comparison? I love that comparison, and I suggested it because I think you guys understand Amulet very well. I think you had a de uh, deep dive on this archetype. Um, you, in, in the camera, I'm waving my hand <laughs> in a non-committal fashion in terms of understanding I understand you very, very well. well. Dan, I'll answer your question. Yes, please well, go ahead. Well, it made sense to me. Everything you said about it made sense to me. <laughs> but as you know, <laughs> in in many situations, the Amulet Titan deck will shift into a controlling mode where the goal of Amulet Titan is to establish inevitability by resolving the first copy of Primeval Titan. Um, it has the ability to chain Primeval Titans so that if necessary, you can fetch, say, a Telerio West and another Bounce Land that gets a Summoner's Pack that gets you a backup copy. So you're not so much concerned about whether that creature lives or dies. Um, but it the idea is that resolving the first copy will create a game state that you, know, you have it under control from that point on. Niv-Mizzet, I think, is function in a very similar way because each copy of Niv-Mizzet can find another virtual copy and you're just hoping to resolve as many Nivs as it takes to end the game. It reminds me of something that David said a few episodes ago about where Modern's at, where it feels like decks are either go fast, aggro, little bit cheaty decks, or they are big man inevitability decks. And while playing with Niv, I feel like it really felt into the inevitability category, where the longer the game goes on, the more likely it is that I land a Niv and then, oh, I have three answers, I have a really good Planeswalker and a really good creature. Okay, cool. Uh, you can't deal with all these things. So it's really not an aggro deck as we'll get into. The, the first couple turns can be a little rough and it's very hard to set up your future game plan. But as long as this deck can get to the late game, I feel like it's on you to lose the game sometimes. Yeah, so I, I want to talk about 
this deck's game plan, right? Like, what is the deck trying to do and how's it trying to get there? And we've talked a lot about Niv-Mizzet Reborn itself, and but I don't think not everyone knows what it does. And so, uh, Dan, Damon, what how would you describe the game plan for this deck and how does Niv itself play into it? The deck is built to do the following thing. Try to trade off resources in whatever way is possible uh, in turns like one through three, one through four, and then resolve a Niv and draw a bunch of cards, which also let you trade resources. But this time you've just gone up so many cards off the Niv that you can just play this one for one game. Um, and then if you ever run out a, the second time through, you can find another Niv. Um, because the Niv's chain in the same way Amulet Titan does, your first Niv can find you a Bring to Light, which gets you a second Niv. And so you look at your opening hand, and you're like, okay, this hand has like a Lightning Heals, uh, an Abrupt Decay, a Bring to Light, and a Teferi. Like, I'm pretty sure I can navigate the first three or four turns correctly with that suite of cards, as long as the mana works out. And then once I've done that, hopefully I can resolve the Niv, which Teferi will help you do in almost all matchups. Uh, and you just feel like you can handle most things that are going to happen. Yeah, so... It sounds like the core pieces are Niv and Bring to Light. So why don't we read these cards for the listeners and you guys can kind of describe why they're so key to the deck. Yeah, absolutely. Niv is it Reborn. Legendary creature, dragon avatar. The mana cost is Wooburg, white, blue, black, red, green. It is a 6-6 creature with flying. When Niv is it Reborn enters the battlefield, reveal the top 10 cards of your library. Only 10, huh? 10 cards. <laughs> for each color pair, choose a card that's exactly those colors from among them. Put the chosen cards into your hand and the rest on the bottom of your library in a random order. So the phrasing on this card is a little weird, but it helps to think of it in terms of the story. This is niv the Living Guild Pact. So he, he can get one card from each two-color guild from Ravnica, essentially. So you get a Boros card, a Golgari card, a Simic card... If you have a second Simic card, you have to choose between them, and the rest go on the bottom. Dan, have you ever gotten a, a ten card hit? That's a personal like achievement that I'm still aiming for. Not yet. Um, actually, my current build doesn't have an Is it card, unfortunately. I know. <laughs> yeah, but that is the dream. My personal best is eight cards off of a Niv. Yeah, I think I definitely hit seven in one of in one of my games in one of my leagues here. <laughs> Only seven. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Okay, so that that's pretty rad. So it's just you have to have every color of the rainbow to cast it. You get a 6-6 six, six dragon that draws you a bunch of cards. But it sounds like Bring to Light is also pretty essential to the strategy of the deck. Yeah, so Bring to Light is a strange, strange card. I had a lot of judge calls with it at GB Columbus. <laughs> a judge, no, the, the judges can't be right. This, my um, opponent is lying to me. This card does not work this way. <laughs> Sometimes I wonder if the card works at all, yeah. But <laughs> it's uh, three blue-green, so five total for a sorcery with Converge. And it says, search your library for a creature, instant, or sorcery card with CMC less than or equal to the number of colors of mana spent to cast it. You exile the card and then shuffle your library, and you may then cast the card for free. Um, so there's like some intricacies, like Grafter's case doesn't stop it because it gets exiled first. I still don't understand which order. Like, do you put the Bring to Light in your graveyard and then announce the Niv trigger, or announce the Niv trigger and then I, I don't actually know. It doesn't really matter. Um, <laughs> one opponent got conf- actually multiple people got people got confused when I used to ferry to cast this at instant speed, and they're like, "Can you do do that?" And the judge was like, "Oh yeah, it turns out that if you couldn't cast it as part of the resolution, Bring to Light could never cast a creature at all." And <laughs> that got appealed. I thought it was a great explanation, honestly. But. Um, <laughs> 
So in particular, if you cast this thing for Wiberg, which is the same CM same total cost of, of five, the converge gets all five colors and therefore it can get you a niv and cast it for free. Which means that each bring to light is actually functionally a niv, barring corner cases like they have a um, force of negation or de- stubborn denial, which can counter a bring to light but not a niv. Teferi Time Raveler completely ruins bring to light, unfortunately. But otherwise, it's a, it's a clean niv, or it's also a tutor package for things like Supreme Verdict. And so your first niv, if it can find you this kind of catch-all tutor to find you whatever piece you didn't happen to hit, or it can find you an Unmoored Ego against Tron decks, or a Crumble to Dust against Tron decks, or it can find you uh, K Commander Kai's Guile is needed. There are times where I would get Unmoored Ego against Bravil Titan and grab all four Titans and then feel like the best player in the world, or there are times where you would just grab the one card you knew that you couldn't beat, and it just... It was very skill testing in a way that I was maybe not quite ready for. And I think that's a really good way to phrase this deck, and we'll get into that. But there's a lot of thinking about what your opponent could do, what they could have, what you need to have. And this deck really pushed me as a Magic player. Yeah, it was awesome. I loved casting it. I liked how it sort of felt like a Summoner's Pact for like a Titan deck. But then also, like we've been mentioning, like sort of a a way to tutor up those silver bullets from your deck as well. So that was pretty awesome. So this pairing of Bring to Light and Niv-Mizzet... I think, Zach, you hit the nail on the head when you said redundancy. When you're trying to brew around a certain card, you have to look at how reliably you're going to have access to that effect. Um, Niv-Mizzet is a very unique card, and you kind of need more than four copies to be able to craft a game plan around the expectation that at some point you'll resolve it. Four copies is not really enough. What works so beautifully about Bring to Light is that it gives you the ability to play six, seven, eight copies, but you also don't float out on that, you don't draw too many nivs because if you have a niv and a bring to light, the bring to light can become something else. It doesn't have to become niv-mizzet. It also just so happens that the trigger of niv-mizzet will often find you a bring to light, and that's the parallel to that primeval titan for a Teleria West um, scenario where you actually don't mind if they've been saving a path to exile the whole game and kill your niv. That's fine. You've probably found a bring to light. You just go grab a second one. Right, so we've mentioned the redundancy. So giving this redundancy, how was this game plan or how was the deck built around this? So you're assuming that you have eight, you're capable of eight Niv-Mizzets, right? So how do you build a deck to maximize this potential? Once you resolve a Niv and draw five cards, as long as those five cards are like at all meaningful, and they'll all be spells, so they, they really should be, um, that part of the game actually is pretty easy. So the real question is how you build a deck that can survive to cast the Niv. And so that's just a matter of picking a, a nice, flexible suite of gilded cards from Magic's history and trying to combine them in a way that can handle most things that your meta can throw at you. And some of these cards are just like generically flexible against, um, for example, like Unmoored Ego. There's like a wide variety of de- like combo decks that this will completely neuter. Against creature decks, Lightning Helix and Trophies uh, and Supreme Verdicts will really never go wrong. And... That's really the key part about this deck is kind of finding the right set of support cards to build a five-color control deck. Sure. So how do you kind of craft that deck and craft the game plan? Like, what are you thinking about when you're playing this deck exactly? Yeah, so really the the deck as we've built it uh, has a few key cards that are really meant to just try to get you to resolving your Niv on time. Um, and they do so in a way that is good in a wide variety of matchups. And I would say that the, the two biggest ones are Renin Six and Teferi Time Raveler. 
they both provide a bit of interference against your opponent's early things while also making sure that you will be able to find your mana to cast Niv or making sure your opponent cannot counter or interact with your attempt to resolve a Niv. And so these two cards are like the, the ones that provide you a clear path to resolving a Niv. And then cards like Lightning Helix and Assassin's Trophy really are just like a catch-all for all sorts of creatures or permanents that your opponent could be playing. Sure, sure, sure. So in terms of what the deck is trying to accomplish in the pre-Niv turns, there isn't really a clear answer to that. We're basically just trying to hit land drops and not fall too far behind. Now, Modern could throw a lot of different things at you, so there's a lot of different ways to fall behind. That could be someone's going after your life total very aggressively, or someone's trying to take away cards from your hand, or someone's trying to put Planeswalkers down, or get a big battlefield of creatures. So the cards that we fill out the deck with are meant to try to mitigate those scenarios so far as possible in game one. And you end up with a really weird looking selection of cards because, you know, you need to be able to cover all of these scenarios. Like the card Lightning Helix is a perfectly fine card in modern. It's not widely played because it's not that efficient unless you really know that you want the damage or the life gain. Yeah. But Niv-Mizzet is tends to gravitate towards versatile cards like that, that they're okay most of the time. Like, you'll often just point it at a Planeswalker to take some loyalty off. Uh, but when you really need it, it's the best possible card. Assassin's Trophy falls into a similar category. It's not the most efficient removal. You do go down a card, you give them a land, but sometimes you just need to hold them off a little bit because you'll, you'll catch up later as soon as you get the dragon down. Yeah, it felt to me kind of like when I'm playing Tron, when like my game plan was make Tron, make Tron, make Tron, and get to the point where once I make Tron, I can then capitalize on the mana and hopefully the spells I have in hand. And when I was playing Niv-Mizzet, it was kind of get to cast Niv-Mizzet, get to cast Niv-Mizzet, get to cast Niv-Mizzet, because then the game was entirely different after I got to cast that powerful dragon. Yeah, that's a great comparison. And there's also a key difference sort of built into that, where a deck like Tron or even a deck like Amulet they pay a heavy deck building cost. They kind of mortgage their whole soul of their deck to try to execute this one thing as soon as possible. Tron does it through all these search cards like Sylvan Scrying or Mulliganing very aggressively. The beauty of Niv is that you don't have to play a lot of cards like that that only serve one purpose. You're actually playing a lot of versatile spells, so you're not spending your first three turns cycling Chromatic Spheres. You're actually have your mana available to cast interactive spells and remove their permanence and contest one for one the things that they're trying to do. Like Damon was saying, if you're trying to cast what Dreadbore and Teferi, those are good cards to cast. Like no one's like, oh, Dreadbore, why is that in there? Or like Teferi, he's not so good. Oh, these are versatile cards that answer a lot of issues and like further your game plan. And I've heard this deck sometimes lovingly and jokingly referred to as like five color trade binder or like trade binder dot deck. <laughs> But like it, it, it feels like that in the best possible sense, right? Because it's like, yeah, these are all the cards that I think are modern playable, and you know they're just in my binder now. Like Colgon's Command, Assassin's Trophy, Teferi. All these cards are just inherently good cards, and they're you're not you know risking any equity to run them. Yeah, and just like the trade binder, if you have like one bad card in the trade binder somewhere, nobody's going to refuse a trade with you <laughs> of that one card. Sure. <laughs> in this case, if you ever resolve a Niv, like the fact you had a, an Unmoored Ego against a control deck or whatever that was useless, it doesn't really matter at that point. Um, if you draw a Supreme Verdict in the wrong matchup, like, it's okay to actually have cards that just really suck in your game one scenario because you go up so many cards off Niv. And so that's why we can afford to play some of these like really kind of niche specialist cards in the main deck. 
So I think that reads really nicely into actually talking about the composition of the deck and what literal spells we're running. We've mentioned a few of them here and there, but let's just go through it. So we're doing that by answering a listener question, and this is from at Milvat, which is the mill guy, or rather that mill guy. So how does the deck parse through what is useful and not so with so many options in each guild? When deck building, even micro decisions, deputy versus D-sphere, a blocker versus hard to remove permanent type, seems like there's really a lot going on there. This is a question that we've thought about a lot, especially in the earliest phases of Niv. I mentioned this is a real brewer's deck because you can constantly tinker with a build. It has about oh yeah six to 12 flex slots at any given time. That's a lot of flex slots. And if you mention, oh, I heard this great episode, a, a deep dive on Niv-Mizzet, and someone says, oh, I play Niv-Mizzet, they'll show you their deck, and it'll probably look nothing like the deck that we're talking about. <laughs> uh, it may be 15 cards different. Um, the core of them is that they have Bring to Light, they have Niv-Mizzet, and they have a lot of gold spells. So like Dan mentioned, there's a lot of different cards, and you can really fit, for the most part, a lot of the different you know two-colored guild cards into the deck. So because of that, for this episode, we are not going to read through the text that we typically would beyond the cards we did, because there are so, so many. So if you're not familiar, my deep apologies to you. You'll have to do a lot of Googling, but this deck, you can just kind of do whatever you want if you want to, and it's amazing. Yeah, so what are the kind of categories of cards that things sort of fit into, have you found? Yeah, so I think of it as the main deck breaks down into about four categories, the most important one is the Bring to Light toolbox. You'll often find three or four copies of Bring to Light in the deck that will grab Niv-Mizzet most of the time, basically whenever the coast is clear, because that's the key aspect of the plan. But you also have a bunch of one-ofs that are really crucial tutor targets for certain scenarios or certain matchups. Cards you'll often find here, Supreme Verdict is probably the most important one. When you have a single copy of Supreme Verdict in your main deck plus three or four Bring to Lights, you functionally have four or five copies of that effect, which is more sweepers than most decks get to play. Uh, the same is true for a card like Unmoored Ego. Almost no one plays this card in the main deck. Why would you? You leave that in the sideboard, of course. But in this deck, because of Bring to Light, only giving up one deck slot for a, car, a very narrow but specialist card like this, you actually get four or five copies functionally, so you can expect to have access to it in most games. Yeah, and actually with Unmoored Ego, you occasionally, just to interrupt Dan's theory a little bit, uh, you occasionally get to completely blow people out with a turn two Unmoored Ego when they don't expect it in game oh, one. Yeah. <laughs> in my oh, win yeah. in a GP Columbus, my opponent goes turn one four is turn two Devoted Druid, and I go turn two Unmoored Ego, uh, Vizier of Remedies. <laughs> and he just goes like, how often, how often does this come up for you? And I was like, uh, you know, sometimes. <laughs> you know, I'm aware of the meta. I follow a few podcasts. I'm not super plugged in. Um, but yeah, sorry, Dan, go back into your uh, theory of the four parts of Niv-Mizzet, please. <laughs> I mean, that's the that's the best part, really. The game one Unmoored Ego against the random deck that it was not designed for. That's... <laughs> Oh, like, yeah, where you know that, like, oh, I can peg this deck as such. Oh, my God, am I going to just totally destroy them? I got other cards. <laughs> um, so Niv-Mizzet, Supreme Verdict, and Unmoored Ego are probably the three most common cards that you'll fetch off Bring to Light. But there are a couple other cards that are included as one-ofs that we really like in our build. Tulsimir, Friend to Wolves, is one that is a personal favorite of uh, Faithless Brewing, I would say. I, I'm loath to cut this card. Um, Wolf Dad, we call him. Uh, this one I might actually have to read, sorry, because not <laughs> everyone knows this card, but it is a... No, please do. 
please read Wolf Dad because it's like eight lines of text. Actually, as I'm well. going to paraphrase from memory here. So if I'm reading this wrong, <laughs> correct me. But it is a three-three legendary elf. When Tolsamir enters a battlefield, you get to create his legendary wolf companion, Voja, the friend to elves. Voja is a three-three green and white wolf, and Tolsamir also says that whenever a wolf enters the battlefield, you get to gain three life, and you may have that wolf fight another creature the opponent controls. So this is kind of a silly standard card that actually isn't even that powerful in standard. <laughs> but it turns out that in modern, because there are so many specialist creatures, uh, you'll find a lot of matchups where Tulsimir will come down, create Voja, and will completely stabilize the board, eat whatever problematic creature is on the other side of the battlefield, and suddenly you you can no longer lose the game. Um, if you play this deck enough, you'll you'll learn that you're never in that much trouble against burn. I've had games where the burn player has me at one life. I have nothing in play. They have two swift spears. They have an idol on the great revel and they have a card in hand. And like, I'm, I'm fine. I've got, I've got Tulsimir coming on my turn. I'm going to go back up to four life. I'm going to kill their idol on. I'm not going to take any damage. I'm stable and I'm out of burn range. So Tulsimir is a card that I like to leave in the main deck specifically, as long as people are still playing basic mountain or sacred foundry. I think Tulsimir has a spot in my starting 60, the other two cards that we often grab off Bring to Light are Kaya's Guile from Modern Horizons, which is one of the few main deck cards that can clear the graveyard. Uh, it's wonderful. It has a m- four modes, and you get to choose two of them. One of the modes is exile all cards from the opponent's graveyard. So this becomes one of your tools to fight against the graveyard strategies. And the last card that we sometimes fetch is Coligan's Command. Yeah, handy two for one, like Damon mentioned earlier. Yeah, I mean, really, the sky's the limit. Uh, I've had my opponent have a chalice on two and on three before, and I use Bring to Light to find Abrupt Decay. Um, <laughs> Can't be countered, baby. I know that game. <laughs> back when we ran Thought Erasure, I actually used Teferi to draw step Thought Erasure my opponent. Uh, you can still do the same with the K command. Yeah, sounds good. So that's the toolbox component of the deck. The other three categories, if we're looking at our typical Niv-Mizzet list, the second category would just be versatile removal spells. So Assassin's Trophy, that's about as catch-all as you can get. Lightning, Helix, and Abrupt Decay. And a third category would be versatile Planeswalkers. The ones that we like to play the most copies of are Teferi, Time Raveler, Red and Six, Oko, Thief of Crowns. And I have a personal soft spot for Vraska, Golgari Queen, and Kaya, Orzov Usurper. So Toolbox, versatile removal, and versatile Planeswalkers. The last part of the deck is the mana, and we've been kind of skirting around this issue or just declining to mention it whatsoever. These are all wonderful spells. They're all in totally different colors. How is it even possible to cast any of them, you may be asking? Um, so we've thought about that quite a lot. And actually, uh, Damon, do you, want, do you want to talk a little bit about how this the mana works in this deck? Yeah, so basically here's how the mana doesn't work. You have a hand with uh, Swamp, Overgrown Tomb, Laning Helix, uh, Teferi and Abrupt Decay, and you're like, ah, I can cast the Abrupt Decay, but you're not even ever going to cast that Lightning Helix or Teferi. And so you have to have basically mull hands like this. But the cards that make the mana actually tend to work way better than it really has any right to are Pillar of the Perrins, which is a card that taps for any color, but it can only be used for multicolored spells. Well, almost everything in this deck fits that, so it actually is basically a, a free five-color land for you. The second one is Astrolabe. It's actually sneakily the best card in the deck. Possibly the best card in all of Magic. Oh my god. <laughs> that card is so good. 
and we talked about that when we when we revisited our Modern Horizons ratings in our uh, second bonus episode. But yeah, we totally underestimated that card. Yeah, the card just does it all. It, it completely fixes your mana. It lets you laugh off a of Blood Moon, and it has all these you know random. It's a permanent type things like it works well with Oko. It lets Teferi draw two cards for you. Um, and it just lets the deck be really resilient to all sorts of things that try to attack your mana base. Um, and then from there, what really rounds it out is Renin 6 plus uh, a fetch land. We've designed the deck so that every fetch mm-hmm. land can fetch every color. Basically, P- Prismatic Vista can do that in an obvious way, although it wasn't obvious in our first list. We only had Abzan basic lands, but now we have one of each basic, possibly two snow forests. Um and then we have uh, we've we've settled on a list where we have all green fetch lands and all green shocks. Um, that said, there are other players out there that have figured out a way to make steam vents work in the deck. I this is where my question of I'm not smart enough to figure that out yet comes into play, but it's probably optimal, honestly. Yeah. So why the green shocks? We've settled down a base green build um, featuring the key card Utopia Sprawl. And we try to center a lot of the early um, spells around green mana, with the exception of Lightning Helix. It gets to a question of whether you want to take advantage of any of the green accelerators that are available in Modern. There are a number of great options. Birds of Paradise, of course, taps for any color. That, that's wonderful if it survives. There's also cards like Gilded Goose, Utopia Sprawl, as Damon mentioned, Search for Tomorrow. We, we tried all these cards, actually. If you want to put a card like that into your deck, you do the Frank Carson math and try to figure out, you know, how many green sources do I need if I want to be able to do that on the first turn. Sure. Hold on, I'm sorry, Frank. Who we don't we don't know that guy in this podcast. We don't have an episode literally dedicated to that man. I've never met him. Well, that's true. If you go back and listen to the Magic Math episode of the Dive Down, I'm trying to think of what episode that was. I have it bookmarked, but you'll know that if you want to cast a green spell on turn one and you only have 15 sources to do it, you're already kind of pushing it. Uh, so Niv kind of skirts the rules of that. Um, we accept that you have to mulligan some of the time. Renin 6 goes a long way towards solving those mulligan issues. It's episode 36 for what it's worth. I wanted to go back to Prismatic Vista really quickly, though. Damon, I know you mentioned it, but I felt like the addition of Prismatic Vista, or I imagine that the addition of Prismatic Vista, because I never played it before uh, Vista was in the deck, it just seemed like it added such an ease of play to get basic lands, get your snow lands really easily that then let you cast the astrolabe. You're able to uh, get it back with Renin six and you're able to bring in those kind of those untapped and painless uh, basics that you're then able to filter through astrolabe. And it seems so easy to hit your colors. Yeah, absolutely. Prismatic Vista being introduced in modern horizons was a huge level up moment for this deck. As I mentioned, we started working on this, before Horizons came out, and we discovered pretty quickly that the mana base was difficult and painful. You were always having to get Shocklands, and you were extremely dead to Blood Moon if they ever tried to. If you, you were very, you were very weak to Field of Ruin, even. So we figured out pretty early that you do want to have one basic land of each type, just because of opposing Assassin's Trophies or Field of Ruins or Ghost Quarters. So when they printed Prismatic Vista, it was just like a revolution. It was I, I was so happy when this happened. And then on top of that, they gave us Arkham's Astrolabe to not only incentivize you to play these base clans, but to really pay you off huge for playing them. And from there, the mana has just been like a dream. Yeah, the mana did feel great um, in my testing. I mean, there were a few times, of course, where you are playing a five-color deck, and it sometimes can hurt. But broadly, it just seemed so easy to filter to the colors I want or just have access to the colors I want. 
A card that we mentioned before, but I want to revisit is Pillar of the Pair Runes, a card that I opened when I must have been 14, 15, and immediately traded away <laughs> as it was garbage in my mind. <laughs> and for a while, it was a card that was two, maybe four dollars, played in EDH, you know, a lot of multi-card spells there, played in casual decks, you know, only four bucks because it was an old set, you know, not as printed as newer sets are. But I'm looking at the graph on MTG Goldfish, and right after War of the Spark, it jumps up to, you know, around 10 bucks, and it jumps up again to $30, and really hovers around there. And I think it's because of the versatility in this deck, and it showed people that a really good card exists if you want to build your deck in a way that's not even that restrictive in the end. Yeah, how many of these did you all purchase uh, before you, you know, went big with this deck? Hundreds? Thousands? I just bought four. <laughs> Damon. I have hundreds of copies of New Visit Reborn, but that's because I have a poor understanding of print runs and MTG finance. <laughs> <laughs> I specced on the wrong card, everybody. Listen, I took out a big loan and I bought a lot of Nivs, yeah. and I'm really hoping he spikes. <laughs> so to cap it off, Pillow of the Pair Runes is a land from Dissension. Tap at one mana of any color. Spend this mana only to cast a multicolored spell. So in this deck, most of the time, it is just a rainbow land all the time, and it is amazing. It is not very good with Utopia Sprawl, and there are some hands where you're like, mm, if I get anything, this will work for me. But for the most part, this is just nonstop amazing this deck, and is almost always what you need. One of the issues I ran into with it, I, I agree with you, Zach, it's a killer land, especially in this deck. But one of the issues is that it, it can't cast single-colored spells. So like a lot of your sideboard cards, or a few of them at least, like a Rest in Peace or something like that, you just simply can't cast it with this land. It's kind of like when you're playing a five-color humans deck or something like that, and you're like, oh, dang, this is like a wizard. I can't cast this wizard with my human land. And so there's some, there's some issues there, but broadly it seems so good. Yeah, it's very true that this deck actually, not just the pillar, but the whole Niv concept itself makes you really reluctant to play single-colored cards like Rest in Peace. Um, it turns out, though, that like that Rest in Peace and maybe Mystical Dispute and Veil of Summer are just so good at what they do. And they're also cheap enough that yeah. you can usually find other lands to cast them um, when the pillar can't, that you just kind of still need to have them. Yeah, that makes sense. So guys, we've kind of talked about the categories of cards and, and how the mana base lets you cast those cards, but I want to go and look at the, the 10 guilds and the type of cards that typically go into the deck, some of the, the, the top selections that you might have in each of these guilds, and just a little tiny bit about why they might be in the deck. Yeah, so to start with um, Azorius, our favorite cards are Supreme Verdict. This card is actually just completely amazing against creature decks. It's like surprising every time you cast to kill four creatures. It feels like you're cheating somehow. Yeah, rats are great. Yep. <laughs> so, nothing else like them sometimes. And then, but this one can't be countered, which is actually extremely relevant in this. Right, game. it's actually one of the reasons why the shadow matchup actually is pretty decent. We have two verdicts after sideboarding, and the Urza matchup. Right, right. Um, and then the other Azorius card that we really love is Teferi Time Raveler. This card just does everything you need it to. It delays the opponent. It lets you cast BTL at instant speed. It makes sure your Niv resolves, um, and it solves all sorts of weird board states in ways that other cards don't. Um, just to answer the one specific question from the, the listener, uh, D-Sphere versus Deputy of Detention. This is a question you actually just kind of answered by playing the deck in leagues. And what happened with us is we tried both, and then your Detention Sphere sits on the battlefield looking pretty for the rest of the game. 
and the deputy gets uh, a fatal push pointed at it, and you thought it raises them later in the game, and their hand is all fatal pushes, and you're like, oh yeah, I guess they can't fatal push anything else in my deck. I see, I see. Um, we actually wound up cutting Deep Sphere also, just because in, in this case, since we have access to all five colors, Assassin's Trophy is just like a slightly more flexible catch-all card. Right, it's better if they can't ever get it back, right? Right, and it hits lands, it hits its instant speed, etc. Yes, it hits Field of the Dead, which is very fun. Absolutely. <laughs> get that card out of there. Get it out of my format. Other Azorius cards that you might find, Lavinia Azorius Renegade out of the sideboard, and Dovin's Veto. In the Simic Guild, there's more competition because Bring to Light is basically a lock. I should mention that as we're going through these guilds, the deck composition, because Niv doesn't get duplicates of the same guilds, you kind of want to spread out your hits. And we found that you don't want to go above four or five, maybe six copies uh, from a single guild. So with Simic, Bring to Light is already taking three or four copies uh, you can't fit that many Simic cards in beyond that without getting too many Nib triggers that are revealing a bunch of Simic cards. But Oko Thief of Crowns, Ice Fang Quetel, uh, these are probably the go-to cards. In Boros, Lightning Helix has a pretty strong lock on being the most important Boros card, although some players like Nihiri the Harbinger, some like Deafening Clarion. Yeah, and then uh, in Orzov... Our favorite cards here are Kaya's Guile, which is just a really flexible card. I think it's totally underrated. It can answer lone creatures like a Tarmogoyf or Thought Not Seer or Reality Smasher, or I'm going to keep naming Etron creatures because I hate that deck. Uh, meanwhile, it can counter target Snapcaster Mage. It can make a 1 1 against Dredge. It can make it so that you shut down the Ren and Six and muck up the Liliana Downtick. I was, like I mentioned earlier, I was really impressed by what this card could do. I was consistently going for it with uh, Bring Delight and found that just useful in a lot of strategies. I was able, like I mentioned, to kill a Hex Drinker when my opponent was like, I'm sure, laughing to themselves, like, ha, 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 I, I truly got them. No, no, no. I, I have this one. I know how to fetch for cards. Also, it, it won me a game versus Boggles, <laughs> which was like, oh, yes, I can do it. I can really, like, targeted? No, 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 no. Because I already used my board wipe earlier, and then they came back with all the pants on a creature. But... This card is one that I really overlooked and think was really soft on during uh, the Dive Down's Modern Horizons, you know, review set. But this card really shown here, and I got to cast it for its Entwine cost a single time, and it was really the highlight of my night. <laughs> I forget it has Entwine, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sometimes you just got to pay seven mana to do four yeah. things. This card is a great example of where it might be the case that Black-White Control is just a weak archetype, but that doesn't mean the card is bad. If a Black-White Control ever catches up, Kaya's Guile, I think, would be a great card to feature there. Yeah, and the deck that we tested, it also ran a Kaya Orzover Super, correct? Go to go along with her Guile. Yes, yes. And she seems she's pretty valuable as well. Like I loved her against Shadow, for instance. Yeah, she does a lot of different stuff, and sometimes she does nothing. So a high variance card, but also just versatile. One of the sneaky reasons that I tend to keep a single Kaya in the main deck is that. There are some games where they they happen to kill all your niv and at that point, only Kaya can actually deal lethal damage. <laughs> yeah, like uh, she's a win con. <laughs> you got to win somehow. Yeah, I've, I've ultimated her for lethal more times than I can count. Yeah. Ooh. And Gruul. I know that we all played Ren and Six, and we talked about Ren and Six before. Is there anything else that really sees play in, in the Gruul slot? There are. There are cards that we like, uh, namely Huntmaster of the Fells, um, specifically because of the synergy with Tulsimir, 
Huntmaster creates oh, a little yeah. wolf friend who can oh, gain you yeah. two life from its from the Huntmaster plus three more life from Tulsimir. And if you're really doing it, if you're really lucky, you get to fight a small creature with a two-two. Cards that other people have tried that we personally have moved away from are Bloodbraid Elf. Um, I find that for me, that card is just not quite doing it. I need to know what I'm getting out of the turn when I commit to tapping out for um, at sorcery speed. But other people have tried that. Uh, we've tried Domri Anarch of Bolas, most valuable as a mana ramp planeswalker that helps your nibs resolve. And Fire Spout, a little bit awkward as a sweeper that uh, you can't actually find off Bring to Light, but it does let your Birds of Paradise survive if you're playing Birds of Paradise. In the Golgari Guild, we have some of the most important spells, actually some of my least favorite spells, namely the Assassin's Trophies. I hate giving up value, and every time you cast a trophy, you're giving up value. <laughs> but Niv is a deck where value takes on strange forms. You're going to get it all back later, so it's okay. <laughs> it's okay if you have to trophy things. Abrupt Decay, often as a one-of. Uh, the value of Abrupt Decay, it's usually replacing an Assassin's Trophy, so you have to ask yourself, which one of these would I rather have? The Decay is much better against Burn and against specifically opposing three mana planeswalkers to fairy time raveler being public enemy number one because that card shuts down your bring to life. So you have to kill it and you have to make sure that they can't counter your removal spell. And finally, Vraskal Golgari Queen, which has the ability to minus three for an abrupt decay effect. Vraska I really like because it helps with the flooding issue that this deck is sometimes prone to, or plus two ability can sacrifice a land or a leftover astrolabe to help churn through your deck and let you see extra cards. Yeah, and a quick comment on Assassin's Trophy for why I, even though I agree with Dan, it kind of sucks to give your opponent a land. Uh, it feels really critical to, off of your Niv, just find a generic answer to basically anything. And Trophy really just fits that role, because no matter what your opponent has, you can almost certainly punch at least a little bit of a hole through it with Assassin's Trophy. You have to be pretty far behind where that won't actually claw you back pretty far into the game. Yeah, for sure. So we've gone through six guilds. We've mentioned a ton of cards you might face. And amazingly, there are still four guilds to go. So <laughs> what? We'll power There's through ten. these last guilds in a minute here. In the Is It Guild, there are actually very few cards that are enticing. Is It Charm is the one that we've probably played the most. And it's a little bit weak. I'm actually not playing it right now. Other cards we've tried are the Royal Scions and Sahili Rise, sometimes in conjunction with Felidar Guardian for when you just need to kill someone instantly. Is it Static Caster, sometimes out of the sideboard to fight humans or Thopters? I have a real quick question for you, and it's do you think that is it cards are particularly good in here because you don't have an issue drawing cards? Because Niv draws you cards, Bring to Light gives you a Niv who draws you cards. So is it just that the blue-red sort of design space isn't giving you more of what you need or doesn't answer what you need to answer? What we really need is a looting effect. So when Royal Scions was previewed... Sure. I thought that was it. I thought this is perfect. This is the card I want. But it turns out that it just doesn't quite do enough. So if they can make a Royal Scions that also can affect the board more, like a Dak Faden. <laughs> I need you to make this Push Planeswalker even better on my desk by Friday. Thank you. Exactly. Can you give me a Dak Faden in Modern by, <laughs> by next week? <laughs> Listen, I'm just looking for that sweet, sweet Dak Faden. <laughs> Uh, we just need to loot slightly more and or maybe make Royal Scions cost two. You can do that, right? <laughs> yeah, sure. I, yeah, I can do that personally, um, yeah. Yeah, we've become very greedy with this year of printings in 2019. It's it's crazy, the state of magic. <laughs> yeah. It's also actually kind of nice to be able to like take a guild off when you're developing your mana in the early turns. Somehow like trying to keep establish a blue and red card is surprisingly difficult. Um 
because it means, for example, like Overgrown Tomb just doesn't do anything for you. Uh, it can be hard to keep up, you know, go for an early Lightning Helix or Assassin's Trophy, but usually you'll have one of the two in your hand and you'll be aiming for that one in particular. But Is It Trump just fits this like weird spot where it's it's really tough no matter what else you're going for to, to cast early. We had on something that we maybe didn't quite say enough earlier, and I think it's really important to point out right now in between the Is It and Selesnia guilds, is that fetching for mana and having your mana early and knowing what you need to cast is so important. And I have definitely messed up playing this deck where I was setting up for a play that was a really greedy, and I should have been getting double white to cast some pre-verdict, but in the end had one white, two blue, and a red, and found myself casting it a turn later, and a board wipe a turn too late, as we all know, means you are dying. So this deck just has, like, the mana is good, and it's in a good place, and you can fetch consistently and astrolabe smooth it, but you can't just click a fetch and then, you know, go, oh, overgrown tomb, why not, into play tapped. Because then next turn, maybe you need a red or a blue, and that land does not make those without Astrolabe. So it's just being aware that this deck does have a pretty intense demand from you, and really thinking a turn to a head. That's why I loved having Astrolabe on the battlefield. <laughs> it was just so forgiving of like my my mana sequencing. Yes, I was rewarded for my misplays yeah. <laughs> quite frequently. Oh, so what what do you all run in Selesnya besides Tulsimir? Selesnya is one of the really interesting guilds. At various times, it's been the most important guild or the least important guild. Our original build used the card Safe Right Quest, which is a green-white hybrid card that can search your deck for a forest or a plains. And we've actually argued at length about this card for probably more than any people on the planet, whether Safe Right Quest is a staple of the deck or whether it's ridiculous. It's either a staple or unplayable. Choose one side. Exactly, exactly. Damon, I don't know if you want to talk about this card. <laughs> I can't do it justice. Just to add to our tracker of time spent discussing Safe Right Quest, um, Basically, Dan was really liking a build involving Utopia Sprawl, and I was liking a build involving Safe Right Quest. Safe Right Quest is what I consider the stable option. It's castable uh, just much easier because your Pillar of the Parents cast it. It is a Niv hit, and so it guarantees that a Niv will at the very least find you a land drop for the next turn. And it just is a very stable ramp card. It kind of says, I'm going to get to Niv on my own time, but it's going to be harder to stop me. And also helps you find a cycling land for Renin 6. And so Ren and Six upticking on fetch lands is great. Sometimes you'll watch a Jun player do that, and you look at their hand like, at the end of the game, and it's just all fetch lands. Uh, the Ren and Six flood can be a very real thing. And so Safe Right Quest can find a card like Irrigated Farmland, which cycles for two mana, and you can use your Ren and Six to now get card advantage. And so other possibilities are cards like uh, Ghost Quarter or Nurturing Peatland type things. Um, but in this case, Safe Right Quest already feels okay, and so having access to, to a reliable copy really boosted Ren and Six's value in the deck. That said, Dan was a big champion of Utopia Sprawl, letting you ramp out turn two to Fairy into turn four Niv. And after playing his list, he kind of just uh, <laughs> made me play the GP. And I was like, all right, Dan, I'll play your stupid Sprawls. Whenever I play him in the leagues, it's always like Trophy, Fulminator, Field of Rune, what, Beast <laughs> Within. And I was like, ah. Dan! <laughs> it's true. Sometimes you just get these like nut Niv draws where you have like a, a piece of like a turn two to fairy into turn three Niv and you just look at what your opponent's doing and they can't stop that. Yeah, I was I was on track for a turn three Niv. I had two Utopia Sprawls on a single land because I that's the way I had to do it. And then of course it got trophied. <laughs> yeah. Oh no. <laughs> but no, my land, my enchantments. So the other really contentious card in Celestia is the card Glittering Wish. This is green and a white sorcery that can fetch any multicolored card out of your sideboard. 
probably less seen in these Jeskai Ascendancy decks that never really took off in modern. So this card is extremely powerful because it can grab any hate piece. Um, the sideboard is full of gold-colored bullets that can really shut down opposing strategies, and it can also grab a Niv-Mizzet out of the sideboard. We don't really play it. Uh, I find it too slow for my tastes, but uh, there's a good chunk of Niv fans that uh, swear by Glittering Wish, sometimes one, sometimes two, sometimes three copies. So don't be surprised if uh, someone casts a Glittering Wish against you in game one and then grabs a devastating sideboard card. Before we move on to last two guilds, I just want to say I like how this deck is six months old and already has factions fighting among <laughs> itself about what is the best to include and how some cards are steeples or unplayable. It, it's fun that a deck can go from nothing to a thriving community in such a short amount of time. You ever see two people with the same trade binder? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just hitting each other over and over again. <laughs> Gilded Goose. Gilded Goose. <laughs> this is the card we But need. I say, yeah, Birds of Paradise. <laughs> Just to finish up Selesnya, there's two important sideboard cards. One is the card Fracturing Gust, which completely wrecks Urza decks and other prison decks, um, any kind of word-based strategy, destroys artifacts and enchantments. Knight of Autumn, another versatile card that we like to have as a one-of. Moving on to the last two guilds. Rakdos is a simple guild. There's only two cards we really consider. One is Dreadbore, nice clean removal for a Planeswalker or a creature. And Kolagun's Command which is a nice two-for-one. It has a lot of different modes. It can get a Niv back out of the graveyard, so, it's another, so it is another virtual copy of Niv-Mizzet. Probably the most important thing that it does is that it takes out an Aether Vial when a creature deck is trying to really get a tempo swing on you. Taking out their Aether Vial and a small creature can help calm the storm until the Supreme Verdict cleans up. And the final guild is Demir, where there's really one card that's has been our signature card from Demir. That is Unmoored Ego, the main deck Unmoored Ego. The reason we played it, we already talked about this, is that the the matchups uh, tend to be so polarizing for Niv that you can afford to have a card that's not quite optimal in game one. And sometimes there are matchups that you're just never going to beat with your Lightning Helixes and your Assassin's Trophies, but you might be able to steal the game with that Unmoored Ego. Yeah, and also, so Surgical Extraction is like one of the most over-sideboarded cards of all time. I think people just like kind of like how they feel in control when they cast Surgical Extraction. And it's surprisingly enjoyable to have your like Unmoored Ego in game one and draw it against Death Shadow. And you're like, I would never have this in post-sideboard against this kind of deck. But I got to play a fun little game now. Like, what do I Unmoored Ego? It's just like a fun little experience. And so I was like, is it Gurmag Angler? Is it Stubborn Denial? Sometimes you land it on Gurmag Angler, and then they just they only have four Death Shadows, and you look at your hand of like Abrupt Decays and Kayas, and you're like, haha, good luck winning with those cards. <laughs> Against Jund, I've hit their uh, Bloodbraid Elves. Um, usually nowadays, I just only guess Oko, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. And I'm usually right. <laughs> Oko. Gotcha. Um, I have to ask you guys get one, one answer. What's your single favorite card in this deck? Josie asked that from our Patreon. For me, Wolf Dad, it's got to be Tulsimir. Just a look on their face as they read the trigger, and it even takes a minute. I'm fetching the token out of my sideboard. And- Wait a minute. A 3-3, three, three, you lose a creature, you gain three. <laughs> what? That was me. I'm reenacting a moment I lived in paper about four months ago, and they got cast against me. Yeah. For for me, the card is uh, Teferi Time Raveler. It just really fits into what this game game plan of the deck uh, I know people just completely, completely hate this card. Yeah. Uh, and I, I understand. I do feel like of all the decks that play it, I feel like Niv is the one that plays it in the most fair sense. Um, I still would hate playing against it. 
but it just lets you kind of do your weird NIV thing and just have no real concerns over what they're going to do to stop you. <laughs> um, it makes the decision trees much simpler when you're going for EOT, uh, like bring to light lines. Um, if you're if you have like NIV, actually frequently once it resolves, gets you pretty close to lethal within a single single swing. You know they shock themselves down to fourteen. You play a NIV and it hits a lightning helix. You have another lightning helix in hand. You have a Ren and six and a K command, and it's like it's getting pretty close. And Teferi just lets you just safely close the door on them. Uh, another card from Demir that we're playing is uh, Drown in the Lock, which is a very recent addition from Throne of Eldraine. And honestly, the jury is still out on this one. Uh, I like one main deck, zero sideboard. Dan likes one main, one side. Uh, the card is super powerful when it works, being this flex uh, terminate counterspell card. But it's, for me, underwhelming when it doesn't work. Like, its floor is really poor against, like, Eldrazi Tron when they curve out, and you look at your Drown in the Lock, and you're like, well, if you sack two more Expedition maps, I can maybe kill your Thought Knots here. Get greedy with Ghost Quarter. Get greedy with Ghost Quarter. <laughs> uh, and then whenever you sideboard in Rest in Peace, you have to cut the Drown in the Lock. And so that's frequently the matchups where it would otherwise be the best. Right. Um, and there's a lot of decks like these these other decks that play Drown in the Lock with Mystic Sanctuary, these kind of, like, Grixis control decks or Blue Moon decks. And all of a sudden you realize that Rest in Peace is a really important tool against them. And that's a deck where you would want to have a counterspell, but now you have to cut it. So we talked a lot about what the deck is made out of, what its composition is, how it's this magical combination of all the magic cards that have been good ever combined into one beautiful Niv sandwich. But how is the deck executing this game plan? Like, what is this deck doing in the early turns? How is the deck operating to get to the Niv phase? So I think maybe a good way to ask this, and something that we've been asked by a lot of people, is... What does an ideal hand for Niv look like? And I know there's not maybe a stock answer because the deck has so many one-ofs and two-ofs that you can consistently hit them. But in general, what is a hand looking like that you want to keep? So the thing that I look for in an opening hand is I look for the mana. I want it to have good mana. And if it has an Arkham's Astrolabe and a way to get a basic land, that's already a great start. If it has a pillar of the parents and a fetch land, that's also a great start because I know I can get all my colors. And if I have a Ren and Six or if I draw a Ren and Six, I'll have a fetch land ready to start doing that. Beyond that, I'm looking for what can I do on turn two and turn three that can interact with the opponent. So ideally, I'll have either a Planeswalker or a removal spell that is you know, widely applicable against whatever matchup I think I might be facing. What you don't need in the opening hand is a path to Niv-Mizzet. And I think that's a trap that maybe someone picking up the deck for the first time might look at their hand and see, oh, there's no Niv here. Maybe I need to mulligan this. You don't. It doesn't matter. You can draw the Niv later. There's plenty of Nivs. You can take your time. Another comparison to Tron then, like we mentioned in our Tron episode, you're not trying to keep a payoff for Tron in your hand, right? You need to make Tron as quick as possible. So it's not, you know, I have a Niv and I'm going to wait to cast this. I need to get the mana so when I get a Niv, I can cast the Niv. Yeah, so like some so decent mana and some interaction, basically. And then you'll get to one of your eight essential copies of Niv-Mizzet with Bring the Light or Niv throughout just controlling the game. Yeah, this deck is fortified with six to eight essential copies of Niv-Mizzet. So it's a great way to start your morning. <laughs> the other category of card that are really great in the opening hand are the Planeswalkers on two and three. You can kind of think of them as removal spells that you pay for in advance. Teferi especially falls into this category where it's not a great hand if all it is is you know, reactive instance because you're kind of wasting your mana. You don't have anything to do unless they play something for you to destroy. A Planeswalker lets you kind of pay up front for your interaction, they'll have to respond to your Planeswalker eventually because Planeswalkers are so powerful these days. 
So any hand that starts Utopia Sprawl into Teferi Time Raveler, for example, is a fantastic hand. Yeah, and one thing I found with this deck is that every opening hand has something of a plan, um, but this deck really just, every game plays out differently. You don't know where you're going to be drawing in the first few turns. You want to be very wary of hands that are too focused around basic lands, because even if you can cast the Abrupt Decay in your hand, can you cast a Teferi coming off the top? And so you want to make sure you have access to, ideally, a, a more flexible set of colors than just the basic lands can provide. But from there, like, you know, you'll have hands with two Lightning Helixes and a Niv and some fixing, and you're like, well, if my opponent's on control, this hand is kind of garbage. Mm-hmm. Right. But you just got to take that risk. And off the top, you might draw, you know, a copy of Teferi and another copy of Teferi. They stop the first one, you resolve a Teferi, and the game's over. Yeah, you said fixing, and I think when I was playing the deck, that really was the most important thing for me was because there are so many different colors, you have to live off the top of your deck in kind of the early part of the game. If you can't cast what you're drawing, you can be pretty screwed. And so I really started valuing things like Astrolabe, really valuing things like Utopia Sprawl, Renin 6, because that's what got me through the bumpy early stages and able to even cast Niv once I drew it. Yeah, and frequently you'll find that not fetching uh, on the first turn can be quite valuable. You can gain back the life from shocking with the lightning helixes in, in a pinch, um, and keeping the optionality open is typically way more important. Yeah, I started sandbagging my fetches as I got more comfortable with the deck, where it's like, okay, I don't need to do the typical end-of-turn fetch. I can just leave this here. Uh, I need to see what I'm going to draw in the next two turns so that I can then make all the colors I need at once and not you know not try to bring in shock lands and to play tapped then to the opponent's turn to save save on life or something like that you had a level up moment in your first try with the deck that's uh, i wasn't even going to mention that that's advanced level oh, up man, well that's well i don't know if i call it advanced but definitely was like after messing up for like four games or four rounds <laughs> in the fifth round i was like shane shane don't do it shane you're 04 you got to win once buddy you got to win once <laughs> Something we, we often go into when we're going into a deck or going over a deck is what is it like in the current meta? Or what is it like, you know, at, at LGS, we're expected to see, you know, maybe 10, 12 styles of decks. How is Nip performing against your average aggro deck versus your average control deck? How is Nip operating in these classic scenarios? Yeah, so the deck features a, a wide suite of cards that can answer a, a lot of different threats people will be throwing at you. We have enough spot removal to feel very comfortable against humans and infect and these kind of creature-based decks to feel pretty confident. Um, and then you can always use a Supreme Verdict to, to clean things up as needed. Against Shadow decks, you kind of need to weather the storm. They maybe point a couple Thoughtseizes at you. But some decks, just like the Thoughtseize decks, can really fall behind to a single Niv. And so as long as you kind of can survive until turn five in any way, uh, in any shape, you can play your Niv, draw a bunch of cards, and chump block their Death Shadow or whatever. Yeah, so what matchups are you trying to see? Are you hoping to see on the other side of the battlefield? Like, what do you think Niv just can roll, or what kind of strategies can Niv roll? Dan said it best uh, Verdict Catacombs is the land you are most excited to see turn one. <laughs> <laughs> and why is that? Yeah, Jund. Jund is a. This deck feasts on Jund. I've kind of developed a set of simple heuristics for understanding whether Niv has a good matchup or a bad matchup. And boils down to if you can trade your cards for their cards, if your removal is effective, essentially, and if you can then resolve a Niv-Mizzet, you're in great shape. You're going to win those matchups most of the time. So if, on the flip side, if your removal is not effective, 
like if they have cards that come back from the graveyard or something, or if they're just not presenting removal, uh, or if they stop you from resolving Niv-Mizzet, like with Counter Magic, or God forbid, a Surgical Extraction, you're probably going to have a hard time in that matchup. So when you think about the main categories of decks in Modern, you can start to see like where they fall on that line. Jund is a deck that uh, does not really stop you from resolving Niv. They can at best use a discard spell, but you'll draw more. And your removal is excellent against them. So they can do their best to maybe get you with a Tarmogoyf, but that's about it. Uh, eventually you're going to resolve a Niv, and you'll be discarding to hand size more than you'll be discarding to their Thought Seizes. It's a hopeless matchup for Jund. The next best broad category of matchups is the tribal aggro. So think of humans, uh, spirits, but also infect and burn. Decks that are hoping to leverage their creatures and attack your life total. It happens to be the case that the the gold cards that Niv plays are full of removal spells, as Damon said. And most of these tribal decks are not expecting to face against decks with this much density of removal. They're uh, seeking to take advantage of the more linear decks in modern. Niv is not one of those. Niv is armed to the teeth with, with removal spells, plus dragons to draw even more of them. So these tend to be uh, very solid matchups for Niv. Yeah, when I play against Infect at GB Columbus in game two, he goes turn two Devoted Druid, and I always go Helix. Turn three Devoted Druid, I <laughs> Dreadboard. Turn four Devoted Druid, Supreme Verdict. Turn five Devoted Druid, Tulsimir. And uh, the game kind of just ended. We get a feature so many more anti-creature cards than Blue-White does because they have to play these paths. They, they don't even want to cast them early. Uh, Jun plays some creature removal, but they really want to lean on the discard. Uh, Niv just plays a bunch of permanent interaction cards, and so these decks that just want to dump creatures, you can really one-for-one one them for a pretty long time. Right. So what are kind of like the the moderate matchups then? So where things get a little more tricky is when they stop you from resolving Niv-Mizzet. <gasps> um, so there are, unfortunately, some of the the more better-known decks in modern, the famous decks, Grixis, Death Shadow, um, Anything with counterspells, blue-whites, even Urza plays counterspells. If they can stop you from resolving the Niv, uh, you might be in trouble. Now, if we can dig a little deeper into that, the Grixis Shadow matchup is one of the ones where you might lose it and never resolve a relevant spell. Like, you basically don't... If they take away your first few plays with discard and kill you with a Shadow or an Angler, uh, you might never resolve anything, um of relevance in the matchup. However, if you do manage to resolve a Niv, they just can't come back from that level of card advantage. One of the tougher matchups this mainstream is Eldrazi Tron. Uh, it sometimes feels like it should be a cakewalk because the resolve Niv just gets you so many cards. But sometimes they come out of the gates with like their Thought Not, Thought Not, Thought Not draw starting on turn mm -hmm, two with two temples. Mm -hmm. Or they have the draws where they just all of a sudden on turn four have a Karn plus Lattice Lock ready to go. Um, and enough kind of things can go wrong there that it feels kind of like a coin flip. Um, we have some key cards like Supreme Verdict, but it's just it's always going to be close on that one. Um, and trying to attack the, their lands with cards like Alpine Moon or Crumples of Dust is usually a losing game. Yep. Unmoored Ego on Karn feels necessary, but still kind of crappy. Um, but it's it's always interesting. You always have actually pretty interesting matchups, although they're when they hit Natty Tron three games in a row, it could be, you know, <laughs> I get tilted sometimes. For my first league, I played Eldrazi Tron for the first two matches and lost. And I'm just like, is this is this like not really good? I thought it was a fun deck. Why am I losing? Oh, this is one of the worst matchups. I get it. I get it now. I, I led the double thought knot into Reality Smasher life both times, and it felt very bad. 
How does it typically fare against some of like the graveyard decks that for former scourges of the metagame, but maybe are you know not really as popular now? In a word, uh, it's rough. <laughs> sure. Um, game one is hard. You have a Kaya's Guile in there and a Kaya in there, but they come online sometimes too slow, especially on the draw. Yeah. Um, we bring in some ammunition out of the sideboard, but during Hogak Summer, we had to just jam like like nine or ten sideboard cards against that matchup. Oof. And it still felt like... Hogak, that deck was insane, of course, but um, it still didn't feel like enough. <laughs> yeah. I, I guess, and I guess right now though we have the Urza variants to worry about. And how is Niv faring against those? That one is is such an interesting matchup. It's a ton of fun to play, and they go through so many builds so quickly. Like at this point, if they don't, if you don't see every game one, like are they not playing it, or do they just not draw it? Uh, it could be really hard to pin them on a seventy five. But we have the tools to deal with everything they do. Sometimes they'll just have like the nutty. Like turn two Oko, turn three Urza type draws off the back of Opals, and just they meanwhile jam a th- couple Emery's in there. But the newer builds of Urza, I think, are actually more favorable because the PO versions, uh, if you ever found a window to resolve a Niv, they look at your cards in hand and they're like, well, that's great, you're tapped out, though. I'm going to make five million tokens, sure. <laughs> draw my entire deck, assemble an infinite combo, and you lose. Uh, yep. But that's cool, you have a Niv. The new versions, if you resolve a Niv, they have like an Urza in play and an Oko, and they can elk your Ur- your Niv, and it's actually pretty annoying if they do that. But that's just the Oko world we live in now. And then they spin their Urza and they hit a Metallic Rebuke or whatever, and you're like, oh, that's that's cool. Um, congratulations. Uh, that Metallic Rebuke is never coming back. And post-side, we get to bring in Mystical Disputes and Veil of Summers, and as amazing as their Mystical Disputes are against us, I think ours are better against them. In these sideboard wars, you can see this a lot if you followed Standard back when Veil was legal. Um, a lot of times you actually have to like not bring in Veil of Summer or cut your counter magic if the opponent deck plays Teferis. Because as soon as they play a single Teferi, you look at all of your Veil of Summers and, and they just don't work. And if you've tapped out and there's all of a Teferi, your Mystical Dispute is going to be too late. And so our Mystical Disputes don't get mucked up by their Teferi because they don't play it, but theirs get messed up by ours. And if you cast two Disputes in a game, you feel so far ahead. So we've mentioned a little bit about how you're beating meta decks and how you're interacting, but going beyond that, how is this like sideboarding against really you know, big tier one strategies? What are you bringing in? What are you thinking about? How are you analyzing and building a sideboard for a five color quote unquote good stuff deck in this wide open meta right now? And more importantly, though, how are you figuring out what to cut? There's only 15 cards. There, there are a few cards that you're like, OK, this is not what I need here. Like, I don't need lightning helix, maybe. But I, I had a hard time removing cards to put in others sometimes those are great questions and i often find that i start with trying to figure out what cards i want to take out on the matchup the main deck of nimizit can look a little bit mismatched so the ideal cyborging scenario is one where like you're saying it's pretty clear which cards are not meant for this matchup and you just take those out lightning helix being one of the most frequent cards cut um, and unmoored ego that's the other card that gets cut most of the time but sometimes it's not clear. If it seems like all of your main deck cards are good against them, then maybe you actually don't need to change anything. You don't need to decide to worry about anything. Right back. Um, <laughs> uh, so this will come up against like the random decks in the format. Niv-Mizzet tends to just destroy the random decks in the format. Uh, any deck that was hoping to assemble some synergistic permanence or like a prison deck, I'm sorry to say, uh, tends to fare very poorly against the miscellaneous versatile removal spells of Niv-Mizzet. Um, 
But for the most common matchups, there are some questions you should ask yourself. The biggest question is, do I need to resolve Niv-Mizzet early? And if I don't, then maybe I can cut a couple copies of Niv or bring to light, because that is a very expensive spell, and the game might be decided before that by hate cards. You'll often find that you, know, you only need one Niv-Mizzet to win the game. Uh, you don't need to draw. You don't need to have six, seven, eight copies. So against Burn, for example, I'll often side down to just a single copy of Niv, because I know I'm going to get Tulsimir first anyway. The second category of card that might not be obvious is you might be able to side out a mana source. And I don't mean a land, but I mean a Utopia Sprawl, or if you're playing Birds of Paradise or something, those creatures. Those can be cut if you feel like the matchup is going to be heavily based on attrition. So think about Shadow Decks, where it could come down to a single war over trying to resolve a Niv-Mizzet. If that's the case, you might have just too many mana sources in the deck, 23 lands plus Astrolabes plus Utopia Sprawls or Birds plus Ren and Six. You have a huge number of mana sources compared to some of these leaner decks in Modern. So one way that you can fight back on that edge is to trim a little bit, not too much, but trim a couple copies of your Utopia Sprawls or something else. So then moving on, how are you playing against this deck? Say I'm at my LGS and there's someone who's always going Faro and I hate them so much, not a real person, but if they were, I'd hate them. How would I play against them or how would I wisely sideboard? So for example, I have a question, but we can start it off. Is Blood Moon good here? We've mentioned that it was before and I've won a real life game with Blood Moon, but this deck has a lot of (laughs) basics and it has Astrolabe. So I feel like if you get Blood Moon early, maybe it's good, but this deck can hate around it. I don't know. Zach, I like how you were like, how does anyone play against this deck? But is my specific favorite sideboard card and main deck card good here? <laughs> I don't run three Magus mainboard currently. No one should at me. Chain's a liar. Well, I remember, Zach, you talked about this on the initial sleeve, believe, heave from many months ago this Blood Moon scenario, and I agree with you completely. Blood Moon was the card we feared the most in the original builds, but that was before Horizons. Now it's a totally different ballgame, and not only do we not really fear Blood Moon because of all of our basic lands, because of our astrolabes, I've considered, honestly, putting Blood Moon into our own side. I thought about it, too, when I was running it. Like, literally, I was like, so often I can make the men I want. Can I just run it here? Yeah, I mean, an early Blood Moon can definitely be problematic, especially if you aren't uh, prepared for it. But it can also just be embarrassing if they have a um, single Astrolabe will make Blood Moon just not do as as much as it needs to do. Ain't that the truth. Um, sometimes I'm like, oh man, I can cast all these red spells in my hand much easier now. Thanks <laughs> yeah. for the extra mountains. He, he fixed my mana. Thank you, sir. <laughs> There's okay. no way he cast two helixes in one turn with <laughs> normally. <laughs> but besides Blood Moon, Damon, uh, what, what 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 do you not like to see coming against you when uh, from the sideboard? Yeah, the flexible cards like Mystical Dispute and Disdainful Stroke that can counter your Nivs uh, can be pretty painful. Mystical Dispute in particular, it also stops the Teferis. Um, and then Veil of Summer can be good. If we're trying to stop your deck by unmortigoing you, then Veil of Summer will totally stop this plan. It also stops a wide variety of the deck's removal. It just makes K Command, Assassin's Trophy, Dreadbore, etc. all not work. Yeah, I find that the blue cards are by far the most effective cards against Niv-Mizzet. Uh, you mentioned the Mystical Dispute. It's just too efficient, and it stops everything. Bring to light, it stops Niv-Mizzet. Um, Stubborn Denial is a very dangerous card. You can get around that from the Niv side by playing the actual dragon rather than Bring to Light, um, similarly with Force of Negation. Uh, when those cards hit a Bring to Light, 
Um, that's a, usually a huge swing in the game. But the, the dragon itself is a little more reliable in that sense. So if you have a counterspell like a Disdainful Stroke or a Mystical Dispute, those can stop both versions of Niv, both the Bring to Light and the Niv-Mizzet itself. The other card that's really deadly against Niv-Mizzet is Teferi Time Reveler for two reasons. One is that it completely shuts down Bring to Light. It doesn't allow you to cast the card you find off of it. Okay. And second, it steals so much mana and time from the Niv player. The common play pattern from Niv, as Shane, you were saying, you, you've learned to just play a fetch land and pass the turn because your hand is all instants that you want to let them resolve something and then remove it if you have to. Uh, Teferi just takes that whole plan and throws out the window. It makes you play at sorcery speed. So often the turn they play Teferi, since the Niv deck is not playing counter magic, they just let it resolve and we waste our mana that turn and then kill it on our turn at a, at a loss of cards and tempo. So I think those are extremely effective. The other card that isn't played that much anymore, but Surgical Extraction, um, Stain the Mind, sometimes I see that out of Crabvine decks. If you can take out Niv-Mizzet Reborn, uh, you've really leveled the playing field. I had a Goblins player played Earwig Squad against us uh, last week. <laughs> what a blast from the past. Oh my goodness. So you'll have to dig deep into the bag of tricks in Modern, but there are ways to not just fight back against Niv, but actually cripple the deck. Uh, with things like that. What tends to not work is the discard. Uh, discard when it's not backed by a fast clock is just not going to work. So if you're a Jund player and you're unfortunate enough to get paired against Niv, your best bet is to get lucky with Fulminator Mages and try to just take them off lands so that they, and just hope that they don't have enough mana sources to resolve their five mana spells. Because the Thoughtseize plan, the Liliana plan, is just not going to work. Uh, they will eventually draw a Niv, and you'll really be in trouble. So we talked a lot about Niv, and we talked about how it's kind of evolved and the upgrades it received in Horizons and some of the newer sets. What do you all see as the future of a five-color Niv, right? Uh, one of our Twitter followers, hamburg to honey asked, what do you think the deck needs to give it that extra oomph? Like, what's going to take it to the next level? And I, I was curious, do you think this deck needs to be taken to a next level, or is it kind of just a little bit underappreciated right now? What do you think about that, Shane? I'm just curious. You've played it now a little bit. <laughs> Shane, judge their deck. Whew, I enjoyed playing it. I thought it had a lot of power. I think the the strategy makes sense. I think the card advantage it can it can generate is really awesome. Is it one of those things where if dis disdainful stroke is is good and in sideboards that Niv Mizzet's not that great? Or do you think that it can it can play around stuff like stroke and, and mystical dispute now? If there's a world where people prepare sideboards like against Niv Mizzet, it's gonna get a little bit wild. <laughs> there's just random cards like Stone Coil Serpent has protection from multicolored. There's like that two one guy with protection from multicolored or whatever. Like it's just like a weird world out there of like Niv hosers. It starts with the parent spike, and then it leads to people building their sideboards, and then it leads to the ban of <laughs> Niv Mizzet in modern. This is your <laughs> fault. I blame you two exclusively. <laughs> Well, where do you where do you see this deck going? Like, I mean, is it is it is it getting more powerful all the time, or do you think that uh, you know you're looking for cards that that need to take it up a notch so that it's even more competitively viable? Nimbusit is a young deck; it's only been around for what six months now, and already it's received so many upgrades just from the set releases. I'm stunned at how many uh, staple cards have been printed uh, since War of the Spark. It turns out that. One of the bag of tricks that Wizards of the Coast design teams often go to is they'll just put some gold cards in every set that are really efficient for constructed. So we're always, always getting new cards for this deck. 
Um, and I think for that reason alone, the the future for Niv is bright. You're, there's going to be upgrades. I don't know what they're going to be, but I'm excited to see like what the next set brings. I know what I'm hoping they print. My answer to this originally would have been, I want them to unban Deathrite Shaman. I think that would be the perfect card for Niv Mizzet. <laughs> But after Horizons, the mana is actually fine. The mana is not the problem anymore. Now I think we need a smoothing tool to get through those games where you're just drawing slightly too many lands. Uh, some kind of looting effect is what I'm looking for for the deck. Um, I'm not sure what that will be exactly, a slightly more powerful version of Royal Scions, let's say. Uh, that, I think, would shore up sort of the last sort of feel-bad draws of the Niv where you just draw the non-Niv half of the deck. Yeah, honestly, I feel like the deck is very well positioned right now um it kind of comes and goes with the metagame and i'm not really sure what cards they would print that would help against like a, another hogak summer but in terms of how it does right now i feel like it has 50 50 game against some of the top decks and then it has 80 20 game against some of the other top decks and there's not many matchups that feel negative on the whole dan and i are both coming off cashing at gp columbus humble brags uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> not a big deal <laughs> i mean it was a small gp to be fair but we got we got to wrap the deck, you know, and we, we did well with it. Um, I actually managed to cash two GPs running with it. Yeah. And I think that just speaks to the power of the deck. And it, it really is quite resilient. Um, a lot of the cards that you would consider upgrading, the upgrades wouldn't be that good. Some of these gold cards are just, you know, Lightning Helix is best in class at what it does. Sure. It's, it's been best in class for, what, almost 10 years now? <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think it just depends on if the meta moves for Niv or against Niv. I guess maybe there are some negative matchups with the graveyard decks. I, I spoke a little bit too soon on that. I mean, Titan Shift can be slightly negative. But if the meta rotates more towards humans or burn or decks like that, then Niv just gets a lot better. Sure, absolutely. The more fair Modern gets, the the better Niv gets. Yeah, so there's a lot of, a lot of hope for that, right? The fair future of Modern. Yeah, and also we're still just, yeah, as Dan said, it's a young deck. We are still exploring where to go with it. Um, other people run lists with Sahili Felidar Garden combo. We ran a league with Faber Elder in kind of like a tap out aggro style Niv list, and we easy five zero, no problem. I'm actually shocked that happened in my sleep, not a problem. <laughs> By that I mean I was extremely surprised that the deck performed at all, much less five would But maybe instead of building a controlling Niv list, it should be a more aggressive Niv list. Maybe we shouldn't do a base green mana base. Maybe we can figure out Steam Vents plus um, Overgrown Tomb is the secret to having perfect mana. Um, who knows? The, the deck's come so far, who knows where it could go in the next um, year. Wow, what a heavy, intense episode. I nived, I misited, I was reborn. <laughs> All the stages of life right there completed. So that wraps up this week's show. Thanks again to Dan and Damon from Faithless Brewing for coming out of the show and helping us learn one of modern's coolest and just most skill-intensive decks. So, Dan, Damon, where can we find you guys? Where can we find your podcast? Go ahead and plug your stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So our podcast, again, is Faithless Brewing. You can find us on all of the places where you get your podcasts. We're on Apple, we're on Spotify, we're on Google Play. On Twitter, that is at FaithlessMTG. And if you like our show and you feel like you want to support us too, we also have a Patreon. That's patreon.com slash faithlessbrewing. We're active on the modern subreddits as well, so you'll often see a post from us there where we post a deck list that we're working on for the week, and it's kind of a nice place people can discuss. Yeah, and your Patreon has a Discord too, right? Absolutely, yeah. We've uh, really been really enjoying sort of getting a small community going of like-minded brewers who are just trading some wild ideas, and that's really been fantastic to see, and we're looking forward to continuing to to grow that. 
So we'll put all the links to all this in the show notes. We'll have a handy way to find all these fine people and all their amazing content. So if you haven't yet, make sure you subscribe to our podcast. See the latest episodes as soon as they come out. If you use Apple Podcasts, please leave us your rating and a review. If you'd like to submit a question to the podcast or ask anything about Modern or Pioneer, tweet us at the dive down, all one word, or email thedivedown at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, you can join our Patreon. Joining in any tier gives you access to our super secret Slack server. For us, as I've noticed, very cool, S4. We love interacting with our Patreons. Patreon.com slash the dive down. So, Zach, I have to interrupt. We promise that if someone joins the Patreon while we're recording, <gasps> we'll give them a live shout out. Adam D, thank you for joining the Patreon while we're recording. Oh, my. Adam D, you are. This is history. This will go once again on the Voyager record. Aliens will know about your accomplishment. Ideally, maybe, probably not. Also, shout out to manatraders.com for sponsoring the dive down. Set it for Mana Traders using promo code the dive down, all one word, for 15% off your first three months of running paper or magic online cards. And as always, special thanks to the bands Nowhere and Spaceblood, letting us use their music. Until next week, get out there and brew your heart out! So we can totally cut this. I, I believe it might be pronounced Voina if we're going by like the Czech, mid, like a mid, like a Central European pronunciation. Oh. And, uh, and the Woj Tech would be pronounced that way. The W O J E K from the Boros area as well. Whoa. We're, we can cut this. No one needs to hear about my knowledge of Central Europe. But I think no, we need. This is important information. <laughs> Listen, I went to school for history, and people need to know about the degree I spent four GD years of my life on. <laughs> Voina. So in, um, in a lot of Central European languages, W's are pronounced with a V sound, and J's are like a soft Y noise. So I think it'd be Voina and like and Vojtek uh, for the the Boris thing. But once again, Tanner cut this. No, no one I'm glad this. Tanner got some good outtake material here. Um. <laughs>